I started sharing with you last week uh, this picture of, um, uh, of these watershed moments. And I shared with you these, these, there's these events that happen in, in history where they not only um, are remembered, not like just like, wow, like that was a, something that we can't forget, but what happens is they almost like change the way that history works after that. They're considered a watershed moment. It, it changes things, okay? And we talked about the fact of a couple of them that have happened in, in maybe our lifespan. Um, but I mentioned that really, as far as I'm concerned, um, perhaps the greatest watershed moment of all history was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This amazing moment. And I shared with you some of that last week. Um, and that's what I want to go back to this week. Um, but, but I want to tell you a story first, okay? And this, this kind of leads into it, okay? There's this, this guy. His name is Simon. And he's just, he's a fisherman. Average, everyday Joe, okay? Regular fisherman. He works with his brother who's named Andrew. And Andrew kind of seems like he's, he's maybe a little more wise than, than Simon. Maybe a little smarter. Um, maybe he's the older brother. I don't really know by the story. Uh, and they were partners with these other two guys named James and John. And they basically worked the same lake. They all fished the same lake. And, and um, that was how they made their money. They'd fish and bring it back in and sell it. How they ate as well. And this guy named Jesus, who we were talking about last week, he comes along and he calls to all four of these men, um, Simon being one of the very first that he calls. And he says, instead of fishing, follow me and I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. That's kind of an interesting comment. But basically he says, we're going to go out and we're going to bring people in, just like you do from a lake, and we're going to talk to them about God. So he leaves. And he goes and he follows Jesus with his brother and with these other two men that he was uh, friends with. Now Jesus, after he gets to know Simon for a while, he gives him a new name. He calls him Peter. Peter actually means rock. And what's kind of fun is if you, if, if you look at that, our modern day translation would be basically like if Jesus renamed uh, Simon Rocky. Yeah, yeah, like Rocky Balboa. Basically the same thing. It means like rock, like this rock solid. And actually Rocky is kind of fitting because he's like this rock solid tough guy, right? He's beating on pieces of meat in, a, in a, a locker, right? And Peter follows Jesus. He learns from his teachings and he spends a lot of time with him. Uh, the story goes and you see Peter right with Jesus as he goes through all these different um, situations that he, he does, healing people, all these different um, teachings that he does. Um, and we actually see in Matthew 14, there's a scenario where, where Jesus actually comes walking across the lake to meet them supernaturally. And Peter is crazy enough to call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, if that's really you, let me walk out on the water and come to you. And he does it. He walks on water through the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. Now, needless to say, he gets a little scared and he starts thinking Jesus has to save him. But man, he spent uh, all this time with Jesus, and you can tell he's really, he's getting in line with it. And we see this in Matthew 16, by about, the, you know, that's a fair amount into, into Matthew. We see this, this story um, kind of have a point where you really realize that Peter gets it. And I want, to, I want to read this to you, okay? In Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, it says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. That was like one of his favorite terms for us. So if you ever hear the term Son of Man, that's Jesus. And well, they replied, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. 
But then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon, the guy I'm talking to you about, he answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn it from any human being. And now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I build my church and all the power of hell will not conquer it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So by, by verse 16, and by chapter 16 in Matthew, we see that man, Peter must have really got it, right? He asks, who do people say I am? And Peter replies, man, you're the Messiah. And Jesus even says, the only way you got that is because God told you. And he says, you actually really get it. And he talks about this awesome promise that he has for, for Peter, right? Well, only a short while later, we see a much different picture of this man, this Peter who's following Jesus. Um, and in Matthew 26, 10 chapters later, after he's been doing ministry with Jesus, we see this. Um, Jesus is betrayed by Judas, and I think so a lot of you guys would know that. And he gets taken to be go put on trial. And, and we see this completely different picture of Peter where when he got arrested, Peter really kind of changed his story. He kind of ran away from Jesus. And in this, in this uh, exchange here, Jesus is being on trial, and Peter decided to go to the place where they were putting him on trial, and he was sitting in the courtyard there. It says this, Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in this courtyard, and a servant girl came over him and said, You're one of those that was with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those who were standing around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. He says, I don't even know the man. And a little, a little later, a little later, excuse me, some other bystander came over to Peter and said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Jesus had said this to him just a little while earlier. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And he went away, weeping bitterly. Only ten chapters later, when the going got tough, Peter just went up and got going. (laughs) He didn't stick with Jesus at all. He immediately turned his back on him. And when it came to the point where he thought, man, if they know I'm with Jesus, maybe I'm going to get put on trial there too. As soon as that was the reality, when they said, do you know Jesus? He said, no. No, I don't, I don't know Jesus. That, that wasn't me. Well, it only gets worse for Peter. In this time of, of, of heartache and where he was, he was heartbroken that, first of all, he had betrayed uh, Jesus by saying, you know what, I don't know him, and he turned his back on him. And he goes away and he was weeping bitterly. The very next report that Peter would have got is that Jesus was murdered, crucified, and now he's dead and gone. And I have to figure, there's some pretty rough stuff going through Peter's mind, right? I mean, he followed him, he spent all this time with him. He come to this point where he, he could have betrayed, I mean, he could have, could have stood up for Jesus, and he didn't. And then now this man is dead and he's buried. In Luke uh, 29, 9-12, we see this story. I kind of shared it with you last week as well. These women, they go to the tomb. And, and in Luke 24, 9 through 12, this is what it says. Um, I think I kind of shared this with you, but just to reiterate. The women rushed back from the tomb to tell the disciples. 
And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who had told the the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like the nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. But I like this. Listen to this. However, Peter jumped up and he ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. I'm guessing that at this time, Peter was more than just a little bit confused. He denied Jesus, and then he'd heard, this man's dead. He's dead and buried. And now he hears that the body's gone. And I have to figure, he's sitting there thinking, man, what in the world is going on? What is this all about? But then I want to jump forward. I want to share another part of the story with Peter. And it's in Acts 2.36. You guys don't have to go there. I'll read this for you if you want. This is Peter speaking. And get this. He says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, Save yourself from this crooked generation. It says this, Those who believe that Peter, what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Peter preaches this message, and 3,000 people give their life to Jesus. Don't you think there's something missing, though? Wait a second. Jesus is gone. Peter went and looked, and no Jesus. And then all of a sudden, we have him preaching sternly that Jesus has been resurrected, and that all these people need to commit their life to him, and 3,000 get saved. Isn't there something missing between those two events? I mean, doesn't that just not really make sense to you in your mind? It's because there is. There's a huge gaping hole between those two events. Between the event of not knowing what had happened and between the event of speaking with authority to 3,000 people getting saved, a gigantic event I left out of that middle of it. And of course, what it is, is that Peter saw the resurrected Jesus. Between those two events of confusion and confidence came a meeting with Jesus Christ, where he saw that he was resurrected. How on earth would Peter get from being completely confused, dejected, sad, to preaching with such confidence and 3,000 coming to know? It's that something messed Peter up between those two events, didn't it? Something grabbed a hold of Peter and shook him to his very core. Something, man, it tore Peter up so that he was just on fire. And it was that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. We know by the story that two different times, Jesus came and he talked to the disciples after he had been resurrected. And on the third time, Jesus even has a conversation with Peter. I want to read that to you now. It's in John 21. After these two different times where Jesus had met with them, this is what happens. It says, Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, those are James and John, and two other disciples. 
feel bad for those guys. They didn't even get listed. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing, and we'll come too, they said. So they all went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, well, throw over your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did. I like to think there was probably more conversation inside the boat there, don't you think? After a full night of not catching any fish, a bunch of real fishermen, guys, and this guy from the shore is like, yeah, just throw it on the right side. My guess is there was a few choice words they probably had in that boat, like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? But they did it, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, who's John, he said to Peter, it's our Lord. When Simon Peter heard it and realized that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, jumped in the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the load, uh, loaded net to shore, for they were only about 100 yards from it. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooked over charcoal fire and some bread. Jesus is such a cool guy. He made them breakfast when he came to see them. Very cool. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net had not torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus goes on to ask him two more times if he loves him. And it's actually a really interesting exchange where he was really kind of testing Peter's um, commitment to him. He actually asks him, if you know the original language, he actually uses a different kind of love language in the third one. It talks about this really deep, godly love. And Peter says, you know I do. And Jesus meets Peter, and this is what changed him. We can see before this time, man, he was confused and scared. And after this moment, he became this amazing leader. Just as it said um, that, that Jesus gave him all these awesome calling in his life that he was going to use him, he did. And Peter is the foundation, really. He's the one who helped start the original Christian church. What we know today, man, it's, it's because Peter really took leadership in helping these disciples form something and create a church. Um, a lot of what we know, he's probably one of the most influential leaders that have really been on earth. I mean, just in, in the sense of just a man other than Jesus. And this resurrection that he saw where he met Jesus, it messed him up. He spent the next 30 years preaching the message of Jesus Christ and building the church. And what's interesting is at the end of these 30 years, he was given the option to deny Christ for the fourth time. Three times he did it in that, in that city gate area where he was sitting in, by the fire. Three times he denied Christ. And at the end of 30 years of service, he was given the opportunity to deny Christ a fourth time. And he didn't. He didn't. As history tells us, he was given that last option, but he refused, and Peter was crucified. Like Jesus, only because of the fact that he didn't want to suffer the same way Jesus did, because he said he didn't deserve to, Peter asked to be crucified upside down. And he was. All that same stuff I told you about crucifixion and the horror, same thing, only he was turned upside down and mounted head down because he said he refused to die in the same way that Jesus did, because he didn't deserve it. Something changed 
in Peter. I mean, something shot steel into his convictions and made them rock solid. A man who was confused, turned away, would not admit that he knew Jesus to the point of where he was asked in the presence of his, his murderer, and he would not back down. Something changed. It was the resurrection that he had met Jesus. What's really astounding, though, <clears throat> is that Peter was not alone in this newfound dedication to Jesus. We see from historical evidence um, and, and some inside the Bible that the disciples actually dedicated their lives to the same thing. All those other disciples, they dedicated their lives the same way, man, to proclaiming the gospel for years and years, saying that Jesus was the Messiah and even stood in the face of their own death. Get this. Philip, he preached to uh, Phrygia, and Philip was stoned to death for his faith. Thomas, he preached the word of God, and he was run through with pine spears. Matthew, he preached to the Jews. He was beheaded. Thaddeus, he went to Mesopotamia, and he was beaten to death for his faith. James, who was the son of Alphaeus, he went to the Jews as well, and he was taken up on top of the temple and told to recant his faith, and when he didn't, they pushed him off of it to fall to the crowds to die. Simon the Zealot, he went to Egypt and Africa, and there he was crucified for his faith. Matthias, the man who actually replaced Judas after Judas turned his back on Christ, he went to Ethiopia, and he was crucified and then stoned on the cross. Andrew, he went to the Scythians, and Andrew was crucified on an X. Have you ever heard of the St. Andrew's cross? It's an X. That's where it got its name, because he was crucified on an X instead of a T. And Bartholomew, perhaps one of the worst deaths, was flayed and then crucified. Flaying is having your skin cut off your body. And then he was nailed to a cross. We see the picture of that, actually, if you, if you know anything about art. Michelangelo, he painted uh, a picture called The Last Judgment, and in it depicted Bartholomew's flayed skin being held um, out. These men refused to deny Jesus in the, faith, in the face of perhaps the most terrible death and torture that were offered to them. Acts 12, 1 and 2, uh, it actually talks about, this is one that we actually have in God's word because it, was, it happened so soon after Jesus, uh, Jesus came back. It says, About the time King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers of the church, he had the apostle James, who was John's brother, one of the first four disciples, killed with a sword. Um, it says that basically what, what happened, uh, if you know history, is that he had his head cut off by a sword. What's really awesome about that is if you read historical evidence, they say that when James came to be beheaded, he was so confident in his faith and his death that the man who was given the sword to execute him asked him why he was so confident and he told him about Jesus Christ and that the executioner laid down the sword and joined James in being beheaded and said, I believe what you believe. And he was murdered right next to James because of how confident he was. Amazing. The only disciple to not be martyred was John, the disciple who Jesus loved. He was exiled to the island of Patmos because of his belief. He was kind of like shunned and put away. They said, we've got to get rid of this guy. Um, however, some historians actually point to the fact that before he was shunned and, and put on an island, they actually threw him into boiling oil once to try to torture him and get him to recant his faith, in which he didn't. How on earth could a group of men like this all be spurred to such radical, sacrificial 
almost to the point of saying insane faith. How? The only answer that makes sense is this. They saw Jesus alive once more. And for them, it changed everything. It changed everything about their faith when they saw it and they knew that it was true. To think that these men um, could have become like this just because it takes more faith than the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. The fact that basically 12 men dedicated the whole rest of their life, even to the point of their death, it would take tremendous faith to believe that these guys just decided. Ah, well, we just, you know, we decided. See, many messiahs, and, and Jesus wasn't the first and Jesus wasn't the last. People have had messiahs, people who come to supposedly fix their lives and change everything, ha- have came. But see, the problem is, is messiah after messiah after messiah, when they die, their followers scatter and they forget about them. It's only while they're here that it actually makes a difference. They're often quickly forgotten. There's this historian, his name is Kenneth Scott uh, Latourette, and he said this, it was the conviction of the resurrection of Jesus which, which lifted his followers out of the despair into which his death had cast them and which led to the perpetuation of the movement began by him. But for their profound belief that the crucified had risen from the dead and that they had seen him and talked to him, the death of Jesus and even Jesus himself would probably have been all but forgotten. He says that, man, without the fact that Jesus came back, I don't even think that we would know about Jesus' death, life. It would have all just been forgotten. If Jesus would have just died, they would have scattered. The books would have never been written. We would never hear about it because these men were dejected at his death. Now, there's arguments. There's arguments that stand against these men and, and their life, their, their death. And I want to just talk to you for a second about them because I think it's really interesting when you talk about these disciples. Some people will say this. The reason why these men were so spurred on, the reason why these men stood in the face of death is very, very simple. They were insane. They were crazy. People believe that maybe these men were just so hopeful that Jesus would come back from the dead that they imagined it. They made it all up in their mind, and then they began to believe it all the way to the point of being so sure of their delusion that they were willing to die for it. Well, this is far-fetched, to say the least. When you start talking about one man, that seems like a possibility. Maybe one or two, but when you talk about 12 different men, man, that's a really, really hard thing to try to prove. Almost impossible. And even if you could say that, really what's interesting is you'd have to negate the other claims that people said of seeing Jesus in one time where there was 500 people that were in a meeting place and saw Jesus. More delusion, 500 people all seeing the same delusion? It seems impossible, almost hard to believe. It would take faith to believe something like that. But probably one of the most compelling things that I find that speaks against this idea that they were just so wanting Jesus to come back that they believed it is this. Even the people who were anti-Jesus were changed by the resurrection. Perhaps the best story of this would be James, who was Jesus' half-brother, We know that after Jesus was born, um, Joseph and Mary, they actually had a couple of other other kids. We hear about uh, Jesus' brothers and sisters who come, and we know that their brothers and sisters didn't believe Jesus. It talks about one time where they come and they say, man, we got to go get Jesus. He's losing his mind. They actually all go and they try to tell him, Jesus, stop it. You're crazy. 
they actually come and try to get him. And Jesus says, no, he says, these people are my mother and brothers. I, I know what I'm doing. But his half-brother didn't believe it says in John 7, 5, even his own brother did not believe in him. It kind of makes sense, right? I mean, does anyone have a brother? Anyone? Yes? If your brother came back and told you, I'm the Messiah, you'd say, no, you're not. <laughs> I've beat you up before. You're not the Messiah. I know that you're a weirdo. I, I, you know, I saw your mom change your diapers. You're not the Messiah. The same thing happened. James said, there's no way that Jesus is the Messiah. He's simply my brother, and apparently he's insane, thinking that he is. But in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that when Jesus came back, amongst other meetings, it says that he met his brother, James. And he met him after being dead and talked to him. We see that toward the back of the New Testament now, there's this book named James, written by Jesus' brother. A book penned by him. And in verse 1 of this book, I think it says volumes. This is how James describes himself. I am James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before resurrection, he was just his brother, albeit his crazy brother that he probably loved but felt sorry for. But see, after resurrection, even James believed. He didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He couldn't delude himself into hoping that he was the Messiah because he didn't believe it. It wasn't until Jesus came back and said, I am. And he said, wow, you're right. It must be true. What man could take and defeat death? The other thing, uh, oh, just in side note of that too, James also gave his life uh, to his service as well. He was stoned to death for his belief later on in life. The other thing that people say is that these men, maybe they weren't deluded, but what they were is they were liars, con men. And they made up this story to perpetuate a lie. It was a scam. And they were liars and they just wanted the story of Jesus to go on. First of all, to level a claim like this, you have to have some sort of evidence. They talk about in science, and I don't know if you guys are science fans or not, but basically, you can't just throw out a claim. You have to have something that backs it. I could do that all the time. I could be like, right now, the sky is yellow. Well, no, it's not. Well, what's your claim? I don't have one. I'm just saying it. It's arrogant to just give a claim. You have to give some sort of evidence with it as well. But the reality is these men were devout Jews. Before they come to know Jesus, they were devout Jews. And get this, they knew that if they proclaimed a false Messiah, they would burn in eternal hell. In their Jewish belief, they knew that if they were to do something like this and tell a lie like this, that he was the Messiah if he wasn't, they would know that their, man, their, end, their end game is ugly. And it's not going to be good. They knew that they would land themselves in eternal punishment. Second, this, this malicious claim on their character, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense with the life that they lived after Jesus came back. I mean, think about it. These men were not made rich by these claims. These men were not really even made famous in their own time. In fact, they spent their lives feeding people who are hungry, clothing the poor, caring for widows and orphans, and helping those who are hurting and needy. Does that sound like the life of a con man? Does that sound like the life of somebody who is just trying to make up a story that that's what they dedicate their life to out of it? It doesn't make sense. And third, and what I believe is the most substantial evidence, is their willingness to die for this belief. You have uh, 11 disciples who walked with Jesus. You have a 12th who was probably one of the 70 that was with him as well. You have Jesus' brother. 
These men suffered tremendous pain, torture, and were killed for their beliefs. And if they had stolen the body and they had lied about this thing, don't you think one of them would have cracked? I mean, you're talking about 12 or 13 men facing severe torture and death. Don't you think one of them would have said, well, hold on. No need to get all crazy. I know where the body's at. Let me just go and show you. We hit it here. There's no need to go ahead and take out the stones or the spears or the knives or anything like that. We can solve this right here. But these men face tremendous torture and death. And it almost seems impossible, doesn't it, to believe that they would go through that for a lie. Something they knew was not true. Who would be willing to knowingly die? Like I said, and even if they were, you're talking about 11 men. Andrew, who was crucified on the X, that was actually Peter's brother. And Andrew knew, he either saw or heard, that his brother Peter was crucified on a cross. And after that, he still preached his message for six more years before he himself was crucified. Don't you think he would have saw the fact of what happened to his brother and been like, man, this lie is not panning out for us. I just need to ditch this and I need to go do something else because I don't want to die the same way that my brother did. No, he spent still the next six years after his brother died preaching that same message until it caught up with him and killed him as well. Arguments are made about this because the reality is just because these men died for this doesn't mean that it's a fact, does it? Because the reality is people do die for lies. Um, You know, in our Christian belief, uh, a very, very good example of that would be people who are in the Muslim faith. They're told that if they they die in battle and basically of of killing people of other religions, the, the radical Muslims, right, that they go to heaven. So simply the fact that they're willing to die doesn't make it true. But the reality is, is those are two completely different scenarios. Because, see, that's faith. And see, faith can do some crazy things to us. Because faith can be also very, very emotional for us. If I was to die for Jesus, I would be dying for my faith. And that could be spurred on by the fact that maybe I'm, maybe I'm a little crazy. But see, these 12 men, these 11 men, they didn't die for faith. They died for a fact. They didn't die for an idea that they had in their mind. They died for a true fact of seeing that Jesus had come back to earth. It's two completely different things. These are eyewitnesses that met Jesus. It wasn't that they wanted to believe it. They knew it was true. They gave their lives to uphold a fact, not faith. Two completely different things. The apostles, the martyrs, they gave their lives for this because the resurrection of Jesus changed everything for them. I think that for us, for you and me, the deaths of the disciples are perhaps one of the most amazing gifts that were ever given to our church. To the Christian church, these men who sacrificed everything for their faith are perhaps one of the most amazing gifts we were ever given because it is, it is a proof of the fact that Jesus really did, he resurrected. Sir Arthur, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, he wrote Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if you've ever read it or not. He says this, Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be truth. We can look at the testimony of Jesus Christ and we can look at the testimony of the disciples and their death for the belief 
And we can say that the idea of them being delusional and insane is impossible. How would that work out? And we can look at the story and we can see the fact of these men being con men and being liars. That just seems impossible. So what remains is that it's true. Jesus really did come back from the grave. And when he met these men, it changed everything for them. And even as improbable, maybe as frightening as that is for us, because it means a lot, it's true. It's true. There's two things that I want us to really take from this morning, okay? And I'm, I'm, always, I'm, I'm big on applications, so here's what I want you guys to think about from this. First of all, if Jesus came back from the dead, and we see it by the proof of these, of these disciples who gave their life, it proves that the words that he said on earth were true, as I was stating last week. And just as these men did, the response is a dedication to Jesus. He said, John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And he says the fact that on earth, all of us, we all sin and we all commit this, this basically rebellion against God and that our sin must be paid for by death. He says, and that's why I came. I came to die, to pay for your sin so that when you die, you don't. You step into life with God. What it begs is, is a response. And for anyone who has not made that in their life, I always like to offer the fact that this morning, if you're in that place and you say, this is true, you need to commit your life to Christ and you need to begin to walk out that faith. Secondly, I believe that us who maybe already have committed our lives to Christ, I hope that the disciples are a picture of dedication that we can grab a hold of. It's easy for us to think that we're doing a lot, right? It's easy for us to think that maybe, man, we're really persecuted as Christians, aren't we? We get made fun of at work. Sometimes people say that we're weirdos, right? They make fun of us that we, we weren't out last night on Saturday night or that we got up early on Sunday morning. But I pray that the, the lives of the disciples are an encouragement to us and a reminder of, wow, this is what dedication looks like. Eleven men who believed so vehemently that they were willing to donate their entire lives even to the point of being killed for their faith. And I hope what it does is it, it spurs dedication in us to say, wow, that's the kind of life that I want to live. I, I highly doubt, I highly doubt any of us will be faced with death in our life for our belief. Perhaps we will in the future, who knows? But man, at least we can start to begin to dedicate our lives to Jesus, our days, every day, saying, Jesus, how can I live a life, man, that's honoring of you? How can I be dedicated today, man, to help spread your gospel to other people? What I want to do is, is I want to uh, I pray. And what I want to invite you guys to do is, is this. Uh, if today you say, you know what, I don't know Jesus, and, and I want to know Jesus, okay? Really, really easy. In just a second, I'll have us bow our heads. If you want to know Jesus, we'll bow our heads. You lift up your eyes. You look at me. Raise your hand. Get my attention. And we'll pray together, okay? After service, we can pray now either way. And then for you guys who are Christians, and if you say, you know what? I want to have that kind of dedication. There's no magical prayer. But as we pray today, just simply say, Jesus, give me that kind of faith. Give me the faith the disciples had. Man, let me be as much of an awesome testimony for you as they were. Let's pray together, okay? Bow your heads.
Jesus, I thank you for today. And I thank you for this time that you've given us. I pray that you would work in our hearts, God, just to show us this faith of the disciples. And if there's anyone here uh, today who does not have faith in Jesus Christ and would like to, just go ahead and look at me right now. Raise your hand. Get my attention. Okay. Jesus, I thank you, Lord God. And I pray to you that, um, Lord, you would just build that faith inside of us, God. Lord, to have like the disciples did. Encourage us by their deaths, Lord God, to remind us that this, this faith we have really is true. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a storybook, but this is real life. And Jesus, to mirror our dedication uh, to that of the disciples. I pray to you, Jesus Christ, um, that you would just meet with each and every person here, people who need to rededicate, Lord God, and reculminate their faith to you, Lord God. I, I pray to you that they would come and talk to me, or we could just discuss. I pray to you, Jesus Christ, that you would give us just exponentially growing faith. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.